1: you're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
2: Welcome to The Exchange, everyone. I'm Morgan Brennan, and for Kelly Evans, here's what's ahead President Biden meeting in NATO with NATO today in Brussels. NATO promising more troops and aid to Ukraine. The U.S. putting new sanctions on Russia. Can anything they say or do stop Putin's war? And BlackRock's Larry Fink says this war is the beginning of the end of globalization. What does that mean for the big multinational companies? We're going to get a traitor's take. And one potential bright spot for housing, lumber prices, they're down 20% in a month. Is that enough to offset the cost of rising mortgage rates? We're gonna get to that, all of that, But we begin with stocks. And for that, we turn to Dom Chu with the numbers. Dom.
3: All right, Morgan, they're in the green. Stocks very much so. If you take a look at what's happening right now, we have solid gains. It's nothing spectacular, but it's still notable. The Dow Industrial is up about 212 points right now. That's more than one half of 1%. To give you some context, at the highs of the session, we were up 279 points in the Dow. At the lows, just a mere four points to the downside. You can see we're tilted towards the higher end of the daily trading range right now. The S&P 500, just a little below that 4,500 mark. 41 handles to the upside there, up nearly 1%. And 1.25% gains for the composite, up 175 points, 14,100 the last trade there. Thematically speaking, we are seeing a pause. A pause in the late rally that we've seen in Chinese internet stocks. Take a look at some of those big names that we've seen so far in trading today. Pinduoduo down almost 8%. JD.com down 5.5%. Baidu down nearly 4%. NetEase down almost 3.5% as well. And the Crane Shares China CSI Internet ETF down 3%. These four, by the way, NetEase, Baidu, JD, and Pinduoduo, four of the worst performers in the large cap NASDAQ 100. So check, check out those. Remember, Big downtrends overall for these names, a bounce near-term, pulling back again today. One other stock you're going to want to keep a close eye on, it's what's happening right now with Darden Restaurants. This is the parent company of Olive Garden, the Longhorn Steakhouse. You can see they're up about 2.5% right now, reversing some pre-market losses. They had come out with a quarterly earnings report that was below expectations for both profits and revenues. Restaurant sales at established restaurant locations also coming in slower than some had hoped for. So Darden restaurants doing better. They, by the way, also kind of lower their full year outlook. Still, though, what you have seen is the luxury side of things in Capitol Grill driving some of those same store restaurant gains. And then a check on the so-called meme stocks. They've been volatile as of late. Entering today... We saw GameStop riding a seven-day win streak. AMC Entertainment, a four-day win streak. But today, we are seeing a pullback. AMC is down roughly 3% intraday. GameStop down about 5% as well. But you can see there that recent volatility has been to the upside for sure. We'll get a check on those. Keeping on at GameStop, Morgan, and AMC. I'll send things back over to you.
2: Nam Chu. thank you. Meantime, President Biden is meeting with the global leaders in Brussels and speaking at a European Council summit about the war in Ukraine. Kayla
4: Tausche is in Brussels with the latest. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Morgan. President Biden is currently debriefing his team before addressing heads of state from the European Union. This after a morning filled with emergency summits with NATO and the G7 focused on the war in Ukraine, whose president, Volodymyr Zelensky delivered an impassioned plea to transatlantic leaders to better arm Ukraine with their planes, their tanks, and their missiles.
5: You can give us just 1% of all your airplanes, just 1% of your tanks. We cannot simply buy it. Such shipment depends on NATO decisions, political decisions, volley fire systems, anti-ship weapons, air defense systems. How can we survive this war without such equipment?
4: As the war enters its second month, allies are increasingly concerned that Russia will resort to using weapons of mass destruction. The White House is currently contingency planning for that possibility with its so-called Tiger Team over the next several months. NATO's Secretary General did not confirm the use of phosphorus bombs in Ukraine by Russia, but said the alliance is equipping Ukraine to detect and protect against chemical attacks and to handle any possible contamination. This is they try to cut off funding for the war. World, world leaders are taking collective action to keep Russia from evading those punishing sanctions. G7 nations restricting Russian transactions using gold. A senior administration official estimating Russia's central bank held more than $100 billion in gold and was using it to prop up the ruble. Leaders will also discuss Europe's energy outlook, with Europe still buying energy from Russia. But they are skeptics on accelerating any move away from Russian energy. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz said just yesterday stopping the purchase of Russian energy would cause a recession. Morgan?
2: It's definitely a key part of this broader conversation, Kayla, Uh, which brings me to my question to you. We're starting to see headlines that the EU is set to receive LNG shipments from the U.S. under plans that are being finalized. Is the expectation that we're going to hear more about that over the next 24 hours and that it is, in fact, going to become a reality?
4: Well, that is what we're expecting to happen tomorrow morning, Morgan. Um, The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is set to meet with President Biden tomorrow. We've been told by the White House that any potential LNG announcement would come in the wake of that meeting. Von der Leyen has said for her part that she wants the U.S. to commit to shoring up Europe's natural gas supply for the next two winters. Of course, Europe had been getting the majority of its gas from Russia. Uh, As they try to build up their storage supply, they need Russian gas to fill up some of those reserves. Unclear what would happen over the next course of uh, these two winters if they did not have that. Morgan. Kayla Kayla Tausche, thank you. Well, my next
2: guest says the NATO summit is a great show of unity, but don't expect any breakthroughs for peace in Ukraine. Let's bring in Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School. She's also the great granddaughter of former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. Um, Professor, it's great to have you on or back on, I I should say, Uh, given the fact that you do know these countries as deeply as you do and the history that goes back many centuries. um, Is there anything here today in terms of these meetings between world leaders that moves the needle on the conflict as we see it playing out on the ground right now?
6: I don't see it. I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see it. We, in fact, already heard that uh, although there is a danger of using uh, the Kremlin, using weapons of mass destruction, potentially chemical weapons, we already heard today that if uh, those weapons may, and hopefully not, but may be used in Ukraine and stay in Ukraine, NATO is not going to interfere. We heard Joe Biden before, uh, even if he uh, was calling Putin the war criminal, saying that he would do anything not to uh, increase the conflict. Uh, uh, Jan Stoltenberg, uh, uh, Stoltenberg was saying that NATO is not party to that conflict. So it does seem that the showing of unity is important. The sanctions are important to keep, to keep pressing for, for the West. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky spoke again and asked for uh, no-fly zone uh, and uh, uh, airplanes and tanks and so on. But his foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, said that we are not going to to participate in the summit because we already know that NATO is not ready to accept us. So there's a little bit uh, kind of push and pull even from Ukraine. So the unity is there. But uh, the idea that Vladimir Putin at this point can be stopped probably is not there. And I believe it's a correct one. I don't think he's going to pay attention to the NATO summit uh, to see the errors of his way and withdraw from Ukraine at this time.
2: So in light of that, and I've heard this from national security and defense officials here in the U.S. in my conversations and reporting as well, that when you're talking about Vladimir Putin, you're talking about someone who does not see losing as an option. So what would it actually take to stop him? Do we know?
6: Well, uh, the negotiations with Ukraine, and I think Olaf of the German chancellor, said it better than anybody or probably more often than anybody, that these are the negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. So if they come to some sort of an agreement, which, are, which is going to be incredibly unfortunate for Ukraine, but may stop the war, that is the case. And I also think that for Putin, at least if we ask for solutions, for Putin, the more weapons Ukraine gets the less likely he will stop attacking it. So that's another conundrum that the West and Ukraine need to address because it does seem that, I mean, it doesn't seem they need to have more weapons to defend themselves. But the more weapons they get, the the more forceful Russia becomes in eliminating it. So it is only the agreement uh, that uh, between Ukraine and Russia, and, and Russia, Russia wants uh, incredible amount of concessions, but if that comes to some sort of a, um, a negotiation final point, that may stop and will let uh, troops be withdrawn. What it is for the future of Ukraine. That's another question, because um, uh, would you, will Ukraine exist as an independent nation after those in, in the in the form that it is now uh, after all these agreements, um, uh, negotiations with Putin would be met? That's a question.
2: Mm. Uh, so no matter how this plays out, I mean, I think it's, it's safe to say the world has changed. We're having this conversation. You have high profile investors today talking about the end of globalization, for example, um, where Russia specifically is concerned, now that we've seen these sanctions put in place, we're seeing that economy thrust into, into turmoil as quickly as we are. Uh, what does that look like in Eastern Europe? What does it look like in terms of all of these uh, trade dynamics, potentially, between Europe and Russia and the rest of the world?
6: Well, I mean, trade dynamics no longer essentially no longer exist mm-hmm. uh, between Russia and in Europe. I mean, of course, there's still gas. And that's another thing. I mean, Putin wanted to... Show that gas is important uh, uh, for for Europe, and he is the or Russia is the uh, solid supplier of it. So now, in fact, by actions in Ukraine, he only increased um, uh, increased the time frame in which other energy supplies will be invented, created and on and whatnot. So that's that's that becomes a problem for Russia. But I think, you know, the mood, at least in Russia, in, in official mood in Russia, is that the sanctions were coming anyway. Uh, more and more often we see we hear from the state officials that what you what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now is it, it, it doesn't allow itself to be eliminated from the world map. So it would be would have been eliminated in globalization because that's what the West always wanted. But now it's going to create its own greatness and therefore doesn't need the world. And it does seem uh, to be a problem also for at least for the Russian abroad because the Central Asian republics are suffering already tremendously from sanctions and and mm. un- beginning unemployment and whatnot. So I think the ripple effect, uh, if not the, if if not an explosion. Uh, is already here. And then soon we'll uh, we'll see more results uh, and more maybe uh, in in years to come that all countries would start being dependent on themselves rather than others. And we already saw this trend in COVID and Putin just exasperated it.
2: Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Nina Khrushchev. Thank you. We've got some breaking news on Apple meantime, and Steve Kovac has that story for us. Steve.
3: Hey, Morgan, Apple shares are up just a bit on this Bloomberg report that Apple is considering a iPhone hardware subscription program. Now, this is something investors and analysts have been like really watching for since they started bundling services together. And so in theory, what this does is you pay a yearly or a monthly fee and every year you get a new iPhone and it bundles together with all those services like Apple Music, Apple Fitness and so on. Um, I've reached out to the company, nothing yet from them, but uh, it is moving shares. This is something people have been expecting Apple to do uh, for quite some time.
2: Steve, thank you. Thanks, Morgan. Shares of Apple up 1%. Well, the Russia-Ukraine war is causing big names on Wall Street to believe this will be the end of globalization. As we just touched on, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink saying, quote, The Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization we have experienced over the last three decades. It has left many communities and people feeling isolated and looking inward. I believe this has exacerbated the polarization and extremist behavior we are seeing across society today. If this comes to pass, what does this mean for international investors? Joining me now, Tim Seymour, Chief Investment Officer at Seymour Asset Management and a fast money trader. Tim, it's great to see you. Hey, Morgan. I would argue, Okay, perhaps this conflict has um, sort of exacerbated the situation. But I would argue that the pandemic and then before that, the trade war actually sort of triggered this process of deglobalization. As somebody who has invested across the world for many years, how do you see it?
7: Yeah, I've been chasing the global trade for a long time. And and I would argue, sadly, that globalization probably peaked at the great financial crisis. And, and, you know, when central banks around the world, first of all, uh, had to protect jobs on a sovereign level more than they cared about efficiencies. We had the public sector bail out the private sector. Um, Global trade as a percentage of GDP peaked in 2008. And we've been we've been fighting that. You talk about the pandemic that that obviously was a case where. Uh, look at our drug companies. Look at our healthcare system. Look at the way that uh, the U.S. and Europe were vaccinated first. Look at uh, you know some of the dynamics around uh, then China with their Made in China 2025. That's not about uh, let's you know broaden and diversify our economy. It's let's protect China and put China first in terms of the global internet and cybersecurity and making sure that China is not on the wrong side of nanotechnology. So we've seen this for many years, but. Uh, Russia-Ukraine is a sad reminder uh, about strategic important sectors.
2: So, how do you invest for this new global world order, de or deglobalized world order, if you will?
7: Well, clearly there there are negative consequences. Uh, a lot of the, the the inflationary dynamics that we see in the world are are ones that we thought were a function of of uh, uh, COVID or you know supply chain dynamics, but some of it really again started where we have seen the global economy become much more regional. Uh, I think there's higher inflation. I think there's going to be a case where investors need to find those strategic sectors. Uh, I, I think in terms of multinationals, they will be more exposed. And, and if you look at small and, and mid-cap companies, they will outperform, I, I believe. And I believe they've actually uh, outperformed over the last 15 years or so during this period where globalization has kind of peaked. So. Um, Strategic sectors, obviously the energy sector has been front and center. And and as much as people think that this is a trade and that oil will be lower by, you know, whether it's six or 12 months out, the lack of investment in the energy sector means that there are structural reasons why oil prices stay high. Uh, The energy sector as an investment is, you know, energy sector is less than 4% of the S&P and and of the, the, you know, the the S&P 500. And if you think about where energy Peaked in the financial crisis, so it was close to 16%. I think this trade's on your side. Obviously, the uranium trade, specifically around energy, uh, URA is an ETF, CCJ, both things I own. Um, I think the defense sector, obviously, also brought into you know front and center. And then regionally, I think you know Mexico, for example, is a major beneficiary of of outsourcing, but regional outsourcing. Mm. Uh, also, they are an oil economy still, and I think there's there's a lot to say about that.
2: Yeah, near-shoring, um, at least where the U.S. is concerned, sure. which sort of raises the question. You've got central banks tightening around the world. You've got high inflation. You've got a strengthening dollar. And then, of course, you've got this reorganization of supply chains. Where does that leave emerging markets more broadly?
7: It's, it's tough. I, I think investors need to be more... Um, you know, need to not seek out the EEM or the VWO as ETFs to get the entire asset class because that's 40% China. Um, and maybe China has bottomed. But I, I think, you know, owning the EWZ or owning Brazil, EWW, Mexico, is the way to invest in emerging markets. As someone that's been an emerging market investor much of his career, it, it, I'm not happy to see that if you invested in the EEM versus the the SPY over the last... 15 years, you've continued to make lower lows. So I think you have to pick your parts of this trade because there is higher growth. There are demographics. Mm. Uh, Ehem is not dead. In fact, I I just think you have to be a lot more selective than, than taking a proxy play approach.
2: Tim, it's great to see you. Tim Seymour. Thanks, Morgan. See you soon. Thanks. Well, coming up, the US already banned Russian oil imports. And now the White House is looking to strike a deal that could reduce Europe's energy dependence on Moscow. What does that mean for crude and nat gas prices, which have rallied since the Ukraine invasion? That's coming up next. Plus, check out some of the housing stocks sliding to new 52-week lows. Whirlpool, Stanley Black & Decker, Fortune brands. They're all down more than 20% year-to-date now. Are they the victims of the commodity crunch or a canary in the coal mine for the rest of the market? The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to the exchange. More volatility for energy prices with WTI and Brent crude lower for the second time in three sessions. Yet yeah, both are still positive for the week and on pace for the best month since November of 2020 as the war in Ukraine disrupts global supply. The White House reportedly closing in on a deal with the European Union to help ease its dependence on Russian energy, including more supply of natural gas. It's an announcement that's expected as soon as tomorrow. What could that mean for consumers and investors? Well, let's ask Paul Sankey, lead analyst at Sankey Research. Paul, great to speak with you today. Hi, thanks for having me. We have seen some volatility in energy prices uh, in the futures market. I do want to get your take on where we go from here, between the fact that we've seen inventory depletion here in the U.S., we're having this conversation about uh, Europe potentially weaning itself more off of uh, Russian oil supplies, and then we've seen some other disruptions and issues going on in, in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East as well. Where does that position us? going into the warmer months?
9: Well, I mean, obviously what you're referring to with the warmer months is driving season in the US with Mm -hmm. very low unemployment. So we're gonna see, as we always do, two things. Firstly, you get more demand during the summer, but before summer the refiners need to switch to make summer grade gasoline, which tends to tighten the market. But they're actually struggling to make diesel because we're most short of all distillate, which is diesel effectively. And therefore we may have a gasoline shortage this summer. We're talking about 110 to $140 Brent over the course of this year. So at 120 today, we're kind of in line with where we thought we would be given uh, the disaster in Ukraine.
2: Does the U.S. have natural gas to supply to Europe right now? And what does that do to the pricing dynamic for nat gas?
9: You know, the biggest problem with natural gas in the US isn't the geology, it's the pipelines. You know, and what they've got to do is is much more to facilitate pipelines. Natural gas is responsible for the lowering of US carbon dioxide emissions over the past 20 years as it replaced coal and the balance. So I'm very against lumping uh, natural gas in with coal and calling it fossil fuels. It doesn't make any sense. And of course, we've seen in the in Europe with very aggressive um, carbon dioxide reduction emissions targets, they ended up hugely dependent on natural gas and that's become obviously a huge problem for them. But it's, as you imply, it's very good news for U.S. EMP companies. And right here we have the Marcellus, uh, which we call the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. So the potential is very much for us to export a lot more natural gas and it's very good news for the United States of America.
2: So who stands to benefit company-wise and producer-wise?
9: Well, ripping today, uh, EQT is pretty much the biggest US gas producer. Uh, Tellurian is an LNG export play that isn't up and running yet, but is a development company. And the classic is always Chenier, which is the existing major LNG exporter in the US. A couple of others that have been beaten up are Shell and Total, major exporters of LNG from the US. So there's a number of ways, but not that many. And we think Shell should break up and actually make a standalone LNG company to take advantage of. What's going to be a huge future for LNG. Just want to add on on LNG, demand didn't fall during COVID to give you an idea of the structural secular bull case for that particular energy thing.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's a key point. And we talk about it I mean, as perhaps as it rightly should be as a bridge fuel. But also when you talk about adoption of hydrogen technologies, natural gas and LNG plays a role potentially in that process as well. Um, you just mentioned the possibility of shortages of gasoline and and, uh, fuel shortages this summer. I mean, how real is that? How do we avoid that?
9: Well, we're just very concerned about inventory levels. And, you know, what we've had this week, which caused oil to go up a lot yesterday, were two things. Firstly, Putin saying that he wants to be paid in rubles, which obviously is having everyone scratch their head, but also simultaneously reminding everyone what a disaster this dependence on Putin is. Um, That was the first thing. And then secondly, the Russians announced they would block off Kazakh oil exports, Uh, which is, you know, a million barrels a day of additional lost exports of oil that's not actually sanctioned, but has to travel through Russia. So just those things alone are kind of scaring the market and we're pricing the potential for really major problems, particularly as regards that Ruble payment thing, which basically Europe can't uh, substitute the amount of Russian gas they use uh, anytime soon. It's just not physically possible, particularly for Germany. So there's a real there's a real problem here. And, and, you know, the market's pricing, as you know, European gas accordingly, essentially trying to destroy as much demand as it possibly can, unfortunately. So effectively, there already is a shortage.
2: Paul Sankey, thank you for your insights. Thank you. Well, still ahead, Alaska Air is outperforming its peers after giving new guidance. The stock is up nearly 30 percent in two weeks after hitting a 16-month low. Later on in the show, we'll tell you what the street's excited about. And what the CEO is saying about rising fuel prices and airfares as we continue that energy conversation. Plus, this stock is trying to snap an eight-month losing streak. It is the longest since going public. Up next, we'll tell you what it is. And what's weighing on the shares. it's down 60%, 68% since last summer. The exchange is back after this. right now, we want to bring you to Brussels, to NATO's headquarters, where President Biden is expected to speak momentarily. Uh, Once he steps out onto that podium, we will bring you there live uh, for those comments. We will continue to monitor that in the meantime. But welcome back to the exchange. President Biden, as I just mentioned, expected to hold his press conference uh, in just a few moments. The markets right now, though. Trading higher. The S&P is up about 1%, 4,498. So just below that 4,500 level. The Dow is up 235 points, nearing the highs of the session so far of about 7 tenths of 1%. And the Nasdaq is the outperformer, as we've seen tech stocks, uh, the best performing sector in general today, up about 1.2%. Real estate is the only sector in the red right now. Uh, we're also seeing materials and communications services higher alongside those tech stocks. But we're going to take it back over to Shepard Smith and President Biden at NATO headquarters. Hi, Chef.
8: Morgan. Thanks very much. Just moments ago, we got the warning that the president will be out in just about two minutes. You know, he's speaking with leaders from all of the NATO countries about how to shore up the sanctions, how to help the Ukrainians militarily, and what to do about the humani- humanitarian crisis that's building really by the moment. CBC senior White House correspondent Kayla she is traveling with the president and live with us in Brussels, and we'll hear from her just after the president speaks this afternoon. We have heard from spokespeople today about uh, what exactly has been going on uh, throughout the day. He has five different sessions in which the president is participating. And Jake Sullivan spoke to us earlier in the day about the key points that they were going to be discussing and shoring up the, this alliance. They want to present a, a focused and one voice presence in, in response to Russia in solidification with the Ukrainians. And and throughout the day, come to an agreement on what sort of military response would be necessary, for instance, if the Russians escalate this attack, if they were to use chemical or biological weapons, what would the NATO response be? We've asked the NATO Secretary General about this matter, who, by the way, was just given another term as the head of NATO. We didn't get specifics from him on that matter. But the hope was that these, that the leaders of the different NATO countries might be able to give a specific answer to what would happen to Vladimir Putin and Russian forces if, in fact, they did escalate and use chemical or biological weapons. Nuclear is not something we know what na- nuclear would be, um, a nuclear attack that infected in any way a NATO ally would mean uh, it's considered an attack on all. At any rate, uh, we're lucky enough to have Kayla Tausche with us live now from Brussels. Kayla, what's the top line on what we expect to hear now from President Biden?
4: Well, you can expect President Biden to talk about the unity of this alliance, how it is unprecedented, and how it has been fomented in recent months, despite these circumstances that have brought the world leaders to this point. But I think what's important to remember, Shep, is that behind the flowery language of some of these joint communiques, there is some differences behind the scenes. And it was at the one-year press conference where President Biden seemed to slip up about that. Good the evening, president everyone. is coming to the stage right now.
10: With all the press is here, you must be getting very tired am I the 16th or 17th at any rate all kidding aside thank you uh, for taking the time I uh, today marks one month since Russia began its carnage in Ukraine the brutal invasion of Ukraine and uh, we held a NATO summit the very next day at that time my overwhelming objective is wanting that summit, was to have absolute unity on three key important issues among our NATO and European allies. First was to support Ukraine with military and humanitarian assistance. Second was to impose the most significant — the most significant sanctions — economic sanction regime ever in order to cripple Putin's economy and punish him for his actions. Third was to fortify the eastern flank of our NATO allies, who were obviously very, very concerned and somewhat worried what would happen. We accomplished all three of these, and today we're determined to sustain those efforts and to build on them. The United States is committed to provide over $2 billion in military equipment to Ukraine since I became president, anti-air systems, anti-armor systems, ammunition, and our weapons are flowing into Ukraine as I speak. And today, I'm announcing the United States is prepared to commit more than $1 billion in humanitarian assistance to help get relief to millions of Ukrainians affected by the war in Ukraine. Many Ukrainian refugees will uh, will wish to stay in Europe, closer to their homes. But we have also will welcome 100,000 Ukrainians to the United States with a focus on reuniting families. And we will invest $320 million to bolster democratic resilience and defend human rights in Ukraine and neighboring countries. We're also coordinating with the G7 and the European Union on food security as well as energy security. And I'll have more to say about that tomorrow. We're also announcing new sanctions of more than 400 individuals and entities aligned with in alignment with the European Union. More than 300 members of the Duma, oligarchs, and Russian defense companies that fuel the Russian war machine. In addition to the 100,000 U.S. forces now stationed in Europe to defend NATO territory, NATO established, as you already know, four new battle groups in Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Slovakia to reinforce the Eastern Front. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite of what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. We've built that same unity with our European — the European Union and with the leading democracies of the G7, in the G7. So I want to thank you, and I'll be now happy to take your questions. Since there's so many people out there, I'm going to been given a list. Now, how about Chris of the Associated Press? First question. Hi, thank you, Mr.
5: President. So you've warned about the real threat of chemical weapons being used. Have you gathered specific intelligence that suggests that President Putin is deploying these weapons, moving them to position or considering their use? And would the U.S. or NATO respond with military action if he did use chemical weapons?
10: You know, on the first question, I can't answer that. I'm not going to give you intelligence data, number one. Number two, we would respond. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. Uh, Josh of Bloomberg. I fired your voice. I didn't elect a lot earlier. I'll give it, I'll give it a try.
5: He's got a long arm. Thank you. Uh, can you uh, talk to us about two things, sir? One, since your conversation with President Xi of China, have you seen any indications of action or lack of action from China that has led you to believe whether they will intervene and help Russia, either with the sale of arms or, uh, or the provision of supplies to support this war in Ukraine? And secondly, uh, can you say whether uh, the conversation today turned to the subject of food shortages and what the US will do to address wheat shortages in particular as a result of this war? Thank you.
10: On the first question relating to uh, President Xi Jinping of China, I had a a very straightforward conversation with with Xi uh, now, I guess it's uh, six days ago, seven days ago, in that range. And uh, I... uh, made it clear to him, I made no threats, but I made it clear to him that make sure he understood the consequences of him helping Russia as had been reported and as, as what it was expected. And uh, I made no threats, but I pointed out the number of American and foreign corporations that left Russia as a consequence of their b- b- barbaric behavior. And I indicated that Uh, I knew how much he — because we had long discussions in the past about his interest in making sure he has economic relations and economic growth with Europe and the United States — and indicated that he'd be putting himself at significant jeopardy in those those aims if, in fact, he were to move forward. I uh, am not going to comment on any detail about what we know or don't know as a consequence of that conversation. But uh, tomorrow, is, is it tomorrow or next Monday that Ursula is having that conference with China? Uh, which, the 1st, on, on April 1st. We've had discussions because I think that um, uh, China understands that uh, its economic future is much more closely tied to the West uh, than it is to Russia. And so uh, I, uh, I'm hopeful that he uh, he does not get engaged. We also did discuss today that there's a need for us to set up NATO to set up and and the EU to set up a system whereby we have an organization looking at who has violated any of the sanctions and where and when and how they violated them. And that's something we're going to put in train. It's not done yet. So uh, with regard to she, uh, um, uh, I, uh, I have not, nothing more to report. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did re- re- talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia, it's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well, and uh, because both Uh, Russia and Ukraine have been the breadbasket of Europe in terms of wheat, for example, just give one example. But we had a long discussion uh, in the G7 with uh, um, the – with both uh, the United States, which has a a significant – the third largest producer of wheat in the world, as well as Canada, which is also a major, major producer. And we both talked about how we could increase and disseminate more rapidly food, sh- food shortages. And in addition to that, we talked about uh, urging all the European countries and everyone else to end trade restrictions on, on sending uh, lim- limitations on sending food abroad. And so we are in the process of working out with our European friends what it would be, what it would take to help alleviate the concerns relative to uh, food shortages. We also talked about a significant major U.S. investment, among others, in terms of providing for the need for humanitarian assistance, including food, as we move forward. Um, uh, Tarina of the Wall Street Journal. Watch Watch out, you don't get hit in the head there now.
3: Mr. President, in your view, does President Zelensky
2: need to cede any Ukrainian territory in order to gain a ceasefire with Russia, or is that completely off the table? And then also, do you think uh, that Russia needs to be removed from the G20?
10: On the latter point, my answer is yes, That depends on the G20. Um, I, that, that was raised today, and uh, I raise the possibility if that can't be done, if Indonesia and others do not agree then we should, in my view, ask to have both uh, um, Ukraine uh, be able to attend the meetings, as well as uh, um, basically Ukraine being able to attend the G20 meeting and observe. With regard to what was the first question? If you think that uh, Ukraine needs to cease
4: uh
10: up uh, any territory in order to get That is a total judgment based on Ukraine nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine I don't believe that they're going to have to do that but that's a judgment there's negotiations that are discussions I should say that have taken place that I have not been part of including Ukrainians and it's uh, it's, it's their judgment to make Cecilia um, ABC there you are.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, sir, you've made it very clear in this conflict that you do not want to see World War Three. But is it possible that in expressing that so early that you were too quick to rule out direct military intervention in this war? Could Putin have been emboldened knowing that you are not going to get involved directly in this conflict? No one, no. And to clarify on chemical weapons could if chemical weapons were used in ukraine would that trigger a military spot response from nato
10: it would be, it would trigger a response in kind whether or not you're asking whether nato would cross but we'd make that decision at the time
1: and my final question because you're heading to poland tomorrow do you think that getting a first-hand look at the effects of this war on these millions of ukrainians who have fled their country could change the way that you might respond?
10: I don't think so because I've been to many, many war zones. I've been in refugee camps. I've been in war zones for the last 15 years, and it's it's it's, it's devastating. And what uh, the thing you look at the most is you see these young children. You see children without parents that are in those camps or in, in uh, refugees. You see women and husbands and men and women who are completely lost and have no nose, you see the look, that blank look on their face, that absolute feeling of, my God, where am I? What, what's going to happen to me? And so it what it will do, it will reinforce my commitment to have the United States make sure we are a major piece of dealing with the relocation of all those folks, as well as humanitarian assistance needed both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine. For example, this is not something that Poland or Romania or Germany should carry on their own. This is an international responsibility. The United States as a leader, one of the leaders in the international community has an obligation to be engaged to be engaged and do all we can to ease the suffering and pain of innocent women and children and men, for that matter, throughout throughout Ukraine and those who have made it across the border. I plan on attempting to see those folks, as well as I hope I'm going to be able to see — I guess I'm not supposed to say where I'm going, am I? But anyway, I hope I get to see a a lot of people. — Marcus of Der Spiegel. Thanks, Mr. President.
1: Um, There is a presidential election coming up in 2024, and
10: as you know, there are yes, (laughs) that's true, Uh, and uh, there are widespread concerns in Europe that um, a figure like your predecessor, maybe even your predecessor
1: himself, might uh, get elected president again. Um, so
10: um, are there any steps, anything uh, you're trying to do and NATO is trying to do here these days to prevent what you're trying to do uh, becoming undone two years from now? Thank you. No, I, that's not how I think of this. I've been dealing with foreign policy for longer than anybody is involved in this process right now. I have no concerns about the impact. I, I made a commitment when I ran this time. I wasn't going to run again. And I mean that sincerely. I had no intention of running for president again. And uh, until I saw those folks coming out of the fields in Virginia, carrying torches and carrying Nazi banners, and literally singing the same vile rhyme that they used in Germany in, in the early twenties or thirties, I should say. And um, and then when. The gentleman you mentioned was asked what he thought, and a young woman was killed, a protester. And he asked, was asked what he thought. Uh, he said, There are very good people on both sides. And that's when I decided I wasn't going to be quiet any longer. And when I ran this time, and I think the American press, whether they look at me favorably or unfavorably, acknowledges, I made a determination nothing is worth. No election is worth my not doing exactly what I think is the right thing, not a joke. I'm too long in the tooth to fool with this any longer. And so we're a long way off in elections, a long way off. My focus, if any election, is on making sure that we retain the House and the United States Senate so that I have the room to continue to do the things that i have been able to do in terms of grow the economy and deal in a rational way with American foreign policy and lead the world, lead, be the leader of the free world. So, uh, um, but it's not, a, it's not an illogical question for someone to ask. I say to people at home, imagine if we sat and watched the, uh, the doors of the Bundestag broken down and police officers killed and hundreds of people storming in. Or imagine if we saw that happening in the British Parliament or whatever. How would we feel? And uh, one of the things that I take some solace from is I don't think you'll find any European leader who uh, thinks that uh, I am not up to the job. Um, and I mean that sincerely. It's not like, whoa, it's that's that. The point is that when the first G7 meeting I attended, like the one I did today, was in Great Britain. And I sat down and I said, "America's back." And one of the one of my counterparts, colleagues as head of state, said, "For how long? For how long?" And so I don't blame, I don't, I don't criticize anybody for asking that question. But uh, uh, the next election, I'd be very fortunate if I had that same man running against me. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, one final question, right. Hey, wait, hold on a second, please. I was supposed to be an hour ago at the European Union meeting Thank and to speak. Now I'm thanking you. Uh, so, so someone I haven't called on before, you, who are you? I'm
1: Christina Arvini
7: from CBS. Thank you, sir.
10: Okay.
1: Sir, deterrence didn't work. What makes you think Vladimir Putin will alter course based on the action you've taken today? Let's
10: get something straight. You remember, if you covered me from the very beginning, I did not say that, in fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. The maintenance of sanctions, the maintenance of sanctions, the increasing the pain and the demonstration why I asked for this NATO meeting today is to be sure that after a month, we will sustain what we're doing, not just next month, the following month, but for the remainder of this entire year. That's what will stop him.
6: You believe the action today will have an impact on making Russia change course in Ukraine?
10: That's not what I said. You, you, you're you playing a game with me. I know. The answer is no. I think what happens is we have to demonstrate the purpose, the single most important thing, is for us to stay unified and the world continue to focus on what a brute this guy is, and all the innocent people's lives are being lost and ruined, and what's going on. That's the important thing. But look, if you're Putin, and you think that that Europe is going to crack in a month or six weeks or two months, why not — they can take anything for another month, but we have to demonstrate. The reason I asked for the meeting, we have to stay fully, totally, thoroughly united. Thank you.
8: President Biden uh, answering questions in Brussels as he continues the NATO summit to try to deter uh, President Putin from continuing his onslaught in Ukraine. Uh, some news on a couple of fronts. I think uh, there was this discussion about what would happen if if uh, the Russians unleashed chemical or biological weapons or got into their nuclear armaments. The president said the United States would would respond and that the United States would respond. Uh, by a means that are determined by the way they are used. So no real specifics there, except to say the United States would respond. In fact, the White House has put together uh, a national security team and intelligence team, which is working on all of the options that would happen if something happened with a NATO country, if there were a bombing of relief supplies coming into Ukraine. The president also talked about sanctions. uh, And for the sanctions, especially on members of the parliament there, the Duma in in uh, in Russia. Let's get to our senior White House correspondent, Kayla Tausche, who's live in Brussels and traveling with the president. Lots of new sanctions imposed today, Kayla.
4: A lot of new sanctions and I think a little bit of news right there from the president where he said that uh, that NATO allies are united in keeping those sanctions in place as long as it would take President Putin to reverse course. President Biden reiterating that he did not believe that sanctions were meant to deter from the outset, despite what several members of his administration said as the basis for that strategy, but said that they are committed to leaving those sanctions in place for up to a year or longer if needed, if that is what it takes to get Putin to back off and withdraw his forces uh, from Ukraine. He also said that he personally supports uh, the withdrawal of Russia from the G20, the group of the 20 largest economies in the world. Uh, of course, you need member countries to vote on that, and Biden suggested that perhaps other members like Indonesia would not agree with the position of the U.S., but that if Russia were kept in the G20, that other countries, he noted Ukraine, should be invited to the table as well. Uh, finally, he was asked, asked about his legacy and his involvement in U.S. foreign policy uh, and the, uh, the effort that he has put into rebuilding these alliances. And he was asked uh, very clearly how he would feel if someone else were elected after him and simply ripped up the seeds that he has sown over the last several months. He said he does not think about it that way. He would be happy to run against uh, former president trump although he did not say his name uh, and said that he thinks that european leaders would say that president biden has done a good job chef
8: thanks very much kayla tauchi <clears throat> excuse me traveling with the president in brussels the nato nato is sending four new battalion groups to enforce the eastern front and as the president said just now 1 billion dollars from the united states in humanitarian assistance for the refugee crisis that is mounting and building even now Complete coverage of the president's activities in that NATO summit tonight, 7 Eastern, on the news on CNBC. For now, Morgan, back to you.
2: Shepard Smith, thank you. Well, we're turning back to the exchange here. And, of course, we have this conversation around the latest geopolitical happenings with the markets uh, all in the green right now. The S&P up 1 percent, retracing 4,500. We've got concerns about inflation rates and, as I just mentioned, geopolitical risk. My, ne- my next guest says no matter what happens, value stocks will outperform over the longer term. Joining me now is Eli Salzman, Portfolio Manager of the Newberger Berman Large Cap Value Fund. Eli, thanks for being on Um Lay out the case for me for why value is so, so compelling even now, even after the fact that we have seen some of those value-oriented sectors outperform the market year to date.
5: Sure. You know, we're, we're thank you for having me. Uh, we're, we're in a very different world now. The world of disinflation that we've been in for the last 30, 35, 40, 45 years is over. We're now entering a world with much more inflation, both on a secular and a cyclical basis. And in an inflationary environment, we're looking at higher interest rates. And we're clearly looking at value over growth. Remember, growth is long duration. Value is short duration. As rates rise, you clearly don't want to be long duration.
2: So look no further than the bond market, arguably, to ask the question, what happens if stalling economic growth actually becomes a reality in the coming months and coming years? Does that not actually reignite growth stocks?
5: You know, the answer is um, if the valuations were a little different, it might. But right now, growth is in the 90th percentile relative to value. We've never seen growth valuations quite like this before, including 2000. So the, the answer is, um, you know, if economic, if economic growth decelerates here, clearly it's not going to be good for value or growth. Stocks will go down. but value will outperform growth on the downside. And then we believe that value will outperform on the upside when we come back out of the recession.
2: So where do you see the greatest opportunities within value right now?
5: Sure, sure, I mean, so we've been overweight energy for about a year and nine months, year and 10 months. We still love energy. Energy has moved from 20 where we bought it up to where it is today. Um, It's still experiencing a serious deprivation of capital and deprivation of capacity. As long as that's the case, energy is definitely a place to be. Um, uh, Materials we're very positive on. Again, it's a sector that's been deprived of capital and capacity. Uh, We are slightly overweight financials. And other than that, we're pretty defensive. We're overweight, both Staples and healthcare here, two groups that we have been severely underweight for the last two years, and only in the last six months have we changed direction.
2: Eli Salzman, thank you for
1: joining us.
5: Thanks very much.
1: Well, that's going to do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.